God, we thank you for an opportunity to gather together and look at your word. And I pray that you would lead and guide us as we do that this morning. I thank you for the folks that are here and those that are tuning in on the podcast. Um, I pray that you would deepen our love for you, deepen our commitment to you through this time. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, Mark chapter 2. Let's recap a little bit, only because it remains pertinent to where the chapter ends. So we read 18 through 22. Let me just reread that real quick. It says, now John's, well, I'll wait because people are still turning there. All right. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. All right, so just recap. The new wine is the new covenant. The new wine requires, I would say, a different vessel. The new covenant requires a different vessel. So not the law and a physical nation called Israel, but the work of Christ and redeemed people who bear his name. So the new wine is the new way in which God, uh, man relates to God, not through law, but through grace. And I would say this changes everything. So Christianity is actually not the continuity of, Jeru- of Judaism. It is something entirely new. It's not like the evolution I said last week from the first Windows computer to the Windows computer you use now, which is actually still running on the same operating system, just has a different appearance to it. Rather, we talked about this being like the evolution from the bicycle to the car. It's got some similarities, but in fact, it's totally different. More differences than similarities. So maybe one of the ways to say this is I think we should understand the old through the lens of the new, not the new through the lens of the old. Any other questions, comments on any of that? Okay, so Mark is actually going to give us an example of this playing out in the teachings of Jesus, um, which is where we're going to go. We're going to see the Pharisees get enraged as Jesus reveals the true kingdom of God, which the law was always intended to grow into. And um, I'll just say ahead of time before we finish this chapter out as, as we read this, man, I really struggled with this text this week. Like, started working it on working on it on Tuesday, and um, felt like even though I've read this before, I like couldn't make any sense of this. And I'll explain why as we as we work our way through this. It's a very familiar text, but then I was like haunted by a Wednesday, Thursday. I stopped thinking about it because I was working more more on my sermon, and then Friday and Saturday I was still like stuck on this. So um, this will be a fun one. Okay, but here's an example of new wine in new wineskins. Somebody want to read chapter 2, 23 through 28 for us? All right, nice and loud for the recording. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along uh, while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you ever read what David did when he was, uh, when he was in need and he, and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abnathar? Abnathar. Abiathar. Abiathar, sorry. <clears throat> the high priest and then ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for anyone except uh, the priest. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not for... 
Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. All right, so there, verse 27, is a good example of new wine in new wineskins. Uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, I would say that was always God's intention from the beginning, but the Pharisees kind of misunderstood it. So we'll spend some time unpacking this. Um, first, though, uh, I don't know if you guys read what we're going to look at before coming here on a Sunday morning, but um, if you notice, actually, Jesus refers to this story from 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 6, and Jesus says it was Abiathar the priest, but did anybody go look at the passage? If not, does anybody know what the text in 1 Samuel says the name of the priest was? Ahimelech. So, what is there, is there a problem here? Do we have uh, like an error in the Bible? Does Jesus not know what he's talking about when he says, in the days of Abiathar the priest, but 1 Samuel says it was Ahimelech? Anybody want to venture a solution to that? I know there's one. I've looked at it before, but I just don't recall. I, I think most of these, when people are like, ah, see, gotcha, Jesus wasn't perfect. He didn't even know the name of the priest, and he was supposedly, you know, an expert with the Old Testament, and he got it wrong. Well, uh, couldn't it be that there were two priests? Right? Eli had two sons. Aaron had two sons. Is it possible that there were two high priests? I don't think the law forbids that. Um, so it's quite possible. He, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't say that it was Abiathar who gave David the bread. He just says in the days of Abiathar, the high priest. So look, there's probably multiple different ways for why we can reconcile this. It's not difficult. Maybe he goes by a different name. Um, that's quite common as well for characters in the Bible to have two different names. Um, but uh, we have multiple instances in the Old Testament of more than one high priest simultaneously. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right. So why, why do you think Jesus would appeal to David? Why, why does this work as a gotcha for the Pharisees? I mean, why, why would this shut the Pharisees up? Because they would be condemning David. <laughs> yeah, right? Which you, you can't do. Like, Moses, David, Abraham, as a Pharisee, you cannot condemn these guys. Um, and there's an interesting verse, 1 Kings 15, verse 5. It says, Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that God commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. So again, these guys know the law. They know that passage that says that you can't find a more righteous man in the Old Testament than David, Moses, Abraham. And so Jesus appealing to David, breaking the law and not being condemned for it is definitely going to shut the mouths of the Pharisees. Okay. Any thoughts, comments, questions on any of that? <clears throat> Okay, here's why I found this passage so difficult. Because I'm having a hard time figuring out how you say this without opening the door to all kinds of problems. So look what Jesus says in verse 26. He says that David entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. So it would appear that Jesus is saying, even though David broke the law, this is acceptable. Jesus doesn't seem to condemn David for this. And this is a law, Leviticus 24 verse 9 says that the bread is for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual offering to them before the Lord. So David clearly broke the law, but he's not condemned for his action. Jesus himself says it was unlawful for David to do this. Jesus cannot condone law breaking. 
In fact, he himself says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 21, that if anybody teaches anyone to essentially disrespect the law, diminishes the law in teaching anybody else, that that person is essentially condemned. So what in the world is going on here? Exceptions, exceptions to certain certain laws. Laws have exceptions in certain situations. Matthew seems to say more clearly what's going on. Okay, you want to look at that? You want to read it for us? Yeah, it says, "Haven't you read what David did when he was with those who were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for him, or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests? Or haven't you read in the law that on Sabbath days?" The priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent. But I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. So the greater law is David was starving. And you don't, I mean, there, when you have two things, you don't set, you don't violate one law to fulfill another law. When you have two things, you don't violate one law to fulfill another law? What do you mean? Say that again in a different way. Well, like if um, if I'm supposed to protect the innocent, right? Um, and people like you can't say the abortion or something, and people are getting aborted in a in like a, in a pornography place or something. Well, I'm going to go in and set wicked things before my eyes. But the greater thing is is that you know um, I'm not going to let somebody die in front of me if I because I have food, but it's the Sabbath. Right. That's the greater the greater thing. I mean, I got to violate the Sabbath. It even says you if your animals in a hole. You don't let it die. Yeah. You save it. You work. Yeah, and that's absolutely <laughs> true. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I've got a, another, a couple other examples of this, okay? Um, what I have in my notes is there's a sense in which we can say that some aspects of God's law are more significant than others. Okay? So Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus does say, these you ought to have done, justice and mercy and faithfulness, without neglecting the others, including tithing, dill, and cumin. So he's saying you shouldn't neglect any of the law, but there, there is an aspect in which there are some parts of the law that are more meaningful, more well, heavier than other parts, more weightier. More weightier is not good grammar, forgive me. <laughs> Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. So, what, let me give you one other one, Matthew 9, 13. Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call sinners, not the righteous. Or, yeah, what were you gonna say? No, I was saying, you know, I guess a misunderstanding is you have people that would, you know, kill the doctor that's performing the abortions because they ultimately believe that that's, you know, that's the, they're saving lives by doing that. I mean, there's lots of justifications by getting this something like this wrong or misunderstanding this, right? I mean, it, yeah, I mean, you could give the example of like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who thought that it was acceptable to assassinate Hitler because of the greater good. I think though, you hopefully you can kind of see. Um, where the problem is. Let me, let me let me say one other thing before we get to it, okay? So I think I think we're totally on to, to the goal or the point here. The point here is that the purpose of the law is to support man in man's pursuit of God. So the law is in fact absolutely binding, but the law does not exist for its own sake. The law exists for a purpose. It exists for the sake of man and God to bring the two together, okay? So the purpose of God giving man the law was never that man would keep the law just for the sake of keeping the law. This is where we get this idea of what's the spirit of the law. Instead, God gave the law so that man would keep the law for man's sake. Right? The law exists to serve man in man's pursuit of God. Not man exists to, or to support the law for the sake of the existence of the law. It's a, it's a little nuanced, but it's actually really important. The law existed to nourish man. And in this case, David was actually nourished by breaking the law. And he was not condemned for it. Okay, but 
You can see the potential problem, can't you? The potential problem is, here's what I was struggling with. How do I get in front of a class of people and on an audio recording, explain to people that Jesus says it was acceptable for David to break the law in this case because he was in pursuit of a greater good, if you will, without giving people the impression that the law is open to our interpretation to be broken where we think it's in the best interest of man to do so. Well, what we, I would say, I wouldn't want to argue from that premise because of the, the greater good. David was, from what I understand, starving, right? Yeah. And so he's going to die. Right. I mean, you don't withhold food from somebody that's going to die because the government says you can't do it or some other law. You, it's like the Corey Ten Boom situation. I mean, people are going to be killed. And I agree with you, but but don't you also don't you feel the the tension in this? Like, God permitted without condemnation His law to be violated. Does that not seem problematic? Uzziah, when he reached out to study the ark because it was falling over and got like instantly killed, so it just seems weird that there's because that was a holy thing he couldn't touch it, but David was able to go in and eat it. You know? Yeah, that's a good illustration of kind of the other side. Like my struggle is, is I'm very uncomfortable, and and here's why. Because, uh, so I wasn't going to go into this, but I will because I think it'll be helpful. There are some people who interpret scripture with what they call a trajectory hermeneutic. Okay, the trajectory hermeneutic says God is in the process of bringing man to some final state of existence, and and so we need to read the Bible understanding the end goal. And if along the way we determine that something that God has commanded is no longer meeting the purpose of bringing man to this end trajectory, then it's permissible for that thing to go away. So a great example of this is homosexuality. They will say, look, God's purpose is for man to love and be in loving relationships. And if that's a gay relationship, then we should toss out what the law says about homosexual or what the Bible says about homosexuality for the greater good of man not being alone. Ironically, there would be no other men born if we all went that way. Yeah, right? And and so this is the difficulty. It is stupid. This is the difficulty that I'm, I'm having where it's like Jesus, Jesus, um, Jesus makes this exception, but it's not like an exception that I want to encourage anybody else to make. Well, well but the same, say at the same time, though, he's teaching them there's a, there's a greater law and there's certain certain circumstances where that is acceptable right i mean jesus is constantly teaching in all things i mean he's teaching them when they're saying this right he's teaching them that you're missing the point here's the point we experience this almost daily in our covenant we're told to submit to governing authorities all, all and then i'm also told how to obey god and i'm it's better to obey god so i'm disobeying one command which is submit to authorities they're telling me to do something. I mean, did the, the, the midwives in Egypt, Yeah, they disobeyed Pharaoh and, and God commended them. Commended for um, it. And I don't think it's justification. Nobody should be Ray, looking for these outcomes. Rahab lied, yeah. right, right to, to cover the spies. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no one should be looking for these outs, but you, I mean, it's not so rigid that, um, look, it was, uh, Matthew, that Matthew person you quoted, uh, he desires mercy and not sacrifice. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You're, if you're trying to sacrifice by not doing something to stay within the law, and sacrificing a life to do so. Yeah. I think. So I think we just need to be very careful on these things. We need to be careful not to be like the Pharisees who say like, no, it'd be better to let the man, the next story we're gonna read is the man with the withered hand, right? It'd be better for him to have a withered hand than Jesus break the Sabbath. That's clearly condemned, right? We don't want to be like them. And yet, at the same time, Jesus is not just opening up Christianity to this relativistic free-for-all that like wherever you feel like it's acceptable to bend and break the law, then you're free to go and do that, okay? Um, and I think for a lot of these relativistic claims, it's not actually hard to, to make a biblical argument against them. Um, and so we just need to be prepared to do that. Right. I, I think that, uh, well, let's let's put it this way. Um, 
And and I went to several different commentaries to try and like reconcile this, and none of them were all that helpful. The closest was this quote, the spirit of the law in respect to human need took priority over its ceremonial regulations. The spirit of the law in respect to human need took priority over its ceremonial regulations. That has a lot of potential to be abused, right? What is the spirit of the law? You know, again, the relative, relativist could take that and say, well, it's whatever I feel like it should be. But Galatians 5.18 says something kind of like this. It says, if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And I think that's ultimately where I would land, is that the Bible, in cooperation with the enlightenment of the spirit, is going to give the true believer an intuitive sense of whether this is a good, right, or wrong. Does that make sense? Well, and God looks at our heart, so I mean, even if it, it's something that might seem right, if we're doing it for the wrong reasons, he sees that or the other way. Yeah, that's also true, right? That's a good point, because you can do everything that the Bible commands you to do, but you can do it with a heart that is still in rebellion against God, and it's not pleasing to God, right? So I, I, I'm trying to protect against these kind of two errors. The one that says like, you know, everything is permissible. And, and the other one that says, you know, rigid law keeping is what pleases God. Um, we don't want to ask the question, is this permissible? We want to ask the question, does this please the Lord? And we, we don't want to keep the law for the sake of keeping the law. We want to keep the law for the sake of pleasing the Lord. And by law, I mean the law of Christ. I don't mean Old Testament law. I don't know why I struggle with that so much. I think it's just because I want to be careful not to have anybody be like, look, Pastor Grady said, I'm free to do whatever I want because David broke the law and Jesus didn't condemn him. Okay, as for the Sabbath, as for this particular instance, I don't think this is difficult at all, actually. I think this is pretty straightforward. The Sabbath has always been an illustration for God's intention to bring man into rest. And actually, what the Pharisees were doing is heaping all these additional burdensome chains on top of this that led not to soul rest, but crushing soul burdens. Okay? Um... You know, if you, shoot, I lost, totally lost my train of thought there. So let's just go to Matthew 23, verses 1 through 4. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, and so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. I remember what I was going to say. So the, the Pharisees, in, in order to protect from violating, keep the Sabbath holy. That's the command, right? Keep the Sabbath holy. In order to ensure that they were doing that, they added all these additional regulations. So you can't go out into the field and harvest your grain on Sabbath because that's not resting. That's work. And then you're not keeping the Sabbath holy. The Old Testament said you shall do no work on the Sabbath, right? So the Pharisees are essentially accusing the disciples here of harvesting grain because they're walking through the field and they're plucking heads and eating it, okay? It's absurd, right? Um, but that's what they would do. They would add these additional regulations to kind of pad the command to make sure that they didn't get anywhere close to it. In fact, it's a little bit like what Adam did in the garden when God said don't eat the fruit and Eve ends up saying we're not supposed to touch it. Well, that's actually not what God said. But you added this regulation to protect so that you wouldn't get close to violating it. And that's not helpful. Isn't like the, the lashes too? There's one lash to make sure that they don't violate it. There's lots of this type of stuff, right? Oh, yeah. Tons, tons of this t type of stuff. This, yeah, this is what they did. So there were 613 regulations. But if you, if you read all the commentary from the, the, the rabbinical teachers in addition to those 613, it becomes many thousands of prohibitions. Okay. Do you think Ahimelech, the priest that gave David the bread, did the opposite of that? Instead of safeguarding it, he loosened it? Because I'm reading it, he says, he says um, there's no ordinary bread on hand, however, there's the consecrated bread, but the young men may eat it only if they have kept themselves from women. 
So what do you, what do you, what's the question though? So instead of saying the bread's off limits, he just kind of says, well, they can eat it, they can't eat it unless they kept themselves from women. Then so he's adding some regulation to it? Is that what you're saying? De he's decreasing the regulation. Like saying, yeah, they can't eat it if they've been with women. Right, but right. If they haven't, they can eat it. Yeah, he's trying to find some compromise, right? Like, Well, is that what he's doing? Because it's not the bread that's on the stand. I don't know what the Old Testament well, if you want to look at it, it's it's not very detailed. It's just in Leviticus 24, verse 9. It simply says that the bread of the presence is only to be eaten by Aaron and his sons. <clears throat> when you find it, if you want to read it for us, you, you could do that. <clears throat> the bread is to be set out before the Lord every Sabbath day as perpetual covenant obligation on the part of the Israelites. It belongs to Aaron and his sons who are to eat it in the holy place. For is the holiest portion for him from the fire offerings to the Lord. This is a permanent rule. Um, it just says it belongs to him, and they are to eat it. It doesn't say they can share it. And David makes a big thing about uh, being a covenant, like ours consecrated. They were consecrated. And David said, well, my men are consecrated for this mission. They're set apart. So what do you do then with the words of Jesus when he says it was not lawful? Yeah, no. I'm, Verse 26. Yeah. Yeah, and this is why I struggled with this. Like, I, 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 again, wasn't sure. Like, I know that Jesus can't endorse breaking the law. Um, and yet, it, it appears that there are sometimes a, a, a more significant higher law. And, and again, I think the principle here is that God gave man the law for man's sake. It was to serve man. It was to make man holy that man might come to God. It was so that man might be reconciled to God and be a friend of God, right? And if the law was serving that purpose, then it was a good thing. And where it was keeping burdens on people and, and keeping them from God, then it became corrupt. Does that kind of make sense? Not that, it's, not that it in itself was corrupt, but it had that effect. Um, we'll look at a couple other passages here. Um, but real quick, when it comes to the Sabbath, guys, Jesus is God, right? He gets to say what the purpose of the Sabbath is. So in this instance, bringing it back to the Sabbath, this is actually not that difficult. And we could say that the disciples were in fact observing the Sabbath. Why? They were following in the footsteps of Jesus. They were resting in the teachings of Christ. They were resting in his presence as they followed him. They were doing Sabbath by following Jesus, even as they were plucking heads of grain. Like for us as Christians, what is the ultimate meaning of the Sabbath? It's that we would come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? Take my yoke upon you. That's the commands of Christ, for my burden is easy. So, in fact, they were actually keeping the Sabbath, and the Pharisees weren't in this ultimate sense. They were concerned with the particular, you know, manifestation in the moment picking grain, and they were missing Sabbath incarnate in the person of Jesus. You say it's like spiritual rest versus physical rest? Yeah, and I think if you read Hebrews 4, this is the point of Hebrews 4. I think Hebrews 4 takes God's rest. And we talked about this as we went through Genesis. God's rest in day 7 and Sabbath and the promised land and says, look, all that is fulfilled in Christ. So ultimately, we can say that the law exists to bring us to Christ. And now that we are under Christ, we do not need the custodian of the law. And that's actually exactly what Galatians chapter 3 is getting at. So verses 21 through 29, let me read it. If you want to turn there, you can. It might be helpful for you to be looking at it. Galatians 3, verses 21 to 29. It says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Okay, so I think Paul's helping us understand, like the law has served its purpose. It was a guardian, but what it ends up doing is enslaving people. The goal is to bring man to God, but man in his corruption takes the law and just uses it as one more idol. Until Christ comes and fulfills the law and sets man free by faith. You know, sorry. No, don't be sorry. I love the discussion. Yeah, but I'm still stuck like in the past with the whole, you know, that verse you read that David did nothing wrong except for Uzziah. Even in this case, when he comes to him, like he's lying. He's saying, I have a special mission, king. It's a lie. David did a lot of that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm just trying to, just trying to make it stop. I'm just thinking about that. Yeah, and, um, there are some things like this. I don't know. You you have to just take it by faith. I don't I don't know how to make sense of this. We know God's word cannot contradict itself. Or Jesus just telling the Pharisee that, hey, you guys quit to point fingers. Then I'm not even pointing fingers. That I'm the I'm you know I'm the authority over all, and you guys quit to, you know. Yeah. To like to. <laughs> yeah. Quit to do, do some. Well, the accusation of these people, and I'm the one who knows everything. Yeah, and, and at first I thought that Jesus was saying, hey, Pharisees, you say that it was unlawful for David to eat the bread. And then I'm like, well, let's see what the law says about it. So I, I you know, do a, a word search on bread of the presence, and there it is in Leviticus, right? Like it's clearly commanded. It's for Aaron. So I'm, I, I'm relieved, actually, that, that I'm not the only one who, like, was was like man this is kind of intense i think it just goes back again to like people's hearts like david was man after god's own heart so yeah he was a human he failed and made mistakes and did stupid things but god saw his heart and it was continually pursuing him whereas like saul when he broke the law and he was trying to offer the sacrifice god knew where his heart was and it was always to serve saul you know and to further his agenda so like God treated those things differently and we can't see on the outside exactly what's yeah. going on, but God sees it all. So. Yeah, yeah. But it's a dangerous thing to go by your heart. No. I don't think it is for us. I think it is to judge other people. I think we can read their heart, but God can judge ours. Well, this is where I kind of ended up landing is like the word of God and the spirit of God together guide the Christian. Right? The Spirit convicts us of sin. The Spirit makes us wise. It, it leads us in truth. God's Word is the constraining sort of boundary to what the Spirit may or may not say or do. Right, We know it's going to be in accordance with what is clearly written in Scripture. And so those two things together, again, doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, but we can be very confident that we're going to discern what pleases God. Um, shoot. Uh, Romans 12, verse 2, right? Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is good. Um, yeah, so we're not to be conformed by the spirit of this world, but by the spirit of God instead, right? So, I, I mean, to some degree where I kind of landed on this is like, I think the Christian is going to have an intuition based on God's word and the spirit, what, what to do in, in a moment that will please the Lord. Um, and in some ways you could call that maybe kind of trusting your heart because it's been redeemed. And if you messed up, you will be convicted about that. Yeah, that absolutely. Your heart will be like so, so full of sorrow and Yep. Yep, and where you mess up, you'll be convicted. And maybe another place that we could go with this too is like the church is another constraining thing here because we can go to one another and we could say, hey, I'm thinking about this decision. You know, can you help me discern whether this is wise and God honoring or not? Um, so maybe we could add the spirit 
the scriptures and the body of Christ. Those three things together. Well, we do learn some stuff about what I would call Pharisaism in this scene. So we learn that when you focus on religious externals, then you become obsessed with trifling things. Do we really think that the disciples in following Jesus were displeasing God by grabbing a head of grain and putting it in their mouth, right? And, and what's, what's crazy about it is when you become obsessed with these trifling religious externals, then you stop thinking about the important thing, the weightier matters of the law, right? You, you become obsessed with tithing dill and cumin rather than the state of the heart before God. You can observe Sabbath law and still despise God. And, you know, we could say on the other side that, like, the, the disciples could eat a couple grains, which is not actually forbidden by God's command, keep the Sabbath holy, and they can actually do it in a way that is pleasing and honoring to God. So the Pharisees are focusing on the outward observable things. They were obsessed with things like washing, fasting, rituals, dress codes, observable self-denial, right? They like to stand on the street corners and pray loud prayers. They like to put makeup on their eyes when they're fasting so people know that they're hungry. And yet they neglected the important things. Repentance, faith, holiness of heart. So I thought it might be interesting for us to, go, to just brainstorm what modern examples of this Pharisaism do we see in the church? Anything come to mind? <laughs> yeah, just going to church on Sunday. Man, the statistics post-COVID on church attendance are shocking, but not shocking. What I mean by that is pre-COVID, people who had this part of their weekly routine, like, man, the more I reflect on my days working at a mega church, the more heartbroken I am at that model. And the reason is because we thought we were killing it if people were committed to attending church twice a month, which is absurd in retrospect, right? Where have all those people gone post-COVID? Well, they got used to a routine after a year and a half of not going to church, and so they don't go to church anymore. Um, I, I know a church that before COVID was running in attendance like 850, and after COVID, is pleased when they hit a 500 in attendance. So where did almost, well, we'll just say 30% of their church go? Well, they were never believers to begin with, unfortunately. So they had some kind of, maybe Phariseeism is not the right word there, but a religiosity. They were committed to religious routines, but not the God behind those things. After praises of men. Yeah, yeah. Or after the praise of the men, or maybe looking to continue to see themselves as good people because mm -hmm. they make this sacrifice to get up on Sunday morning when most people are sleeping in. How about this one? How about singing songs in church without actually reflecting on the lyrics? Mm -hmm. That's Pharisaism. Yep. Yep. You are letting words that have meaning come out of your mouth as you stand in the presence of God around the people of God, and yet no effect. No mental connection to what, what's being said. There's no heart connected to those words. What'd you say, Monica? I surrender all, sort of. I surrender some. Some can't have difficulty having a heart connection with lyrics are pathetic, though, and they keep repeating over Yeah, it's That's why it's so important that the lyrics of the song in corporate worship is biblical yeah I'm just feeling bass i mean i'm i'm very particular about the the lyrics of the songs yeah because you know you know it's based in the emotion it's not good right it should be based in the bible yeah yeah it is not wrong for a song to create an emotional response but that's not the goal of yeah. the song right it's if that happens as a byproduct so be it but that's not the goal and and i would say that more often than not scripture points us to Letting the mind dictate what the heart feels. That's, that's important. Um, 
My grandpa used to call songs like that 7-Eleven songs because they have seven words and you sing them 11 times over and over again. <laughs> he hated 7-Eleven songs. Um, the old hymn actually is still, you know, the best. I, I like hymns. I like hymns. And I do. But um, <laughs> we, have examples, we have examples in the Psalms of repetitive lines. Your steadfast love endures forever. Mm-hmm. You know. That was still the best, you know, songs yeah. to me. How about giving a little portion of your money to the church so that you can feel justified in keeping the rest? Yeah. That's Pharisaism. Uh-huh. Right? And it could look like all different kinds of things, you know. You, you could check out at the Fry's grocery store and it says, do you want to give a dollar to St. Jude's Hospital? And you're like, yeah, I'm a good person. And now that I gave that dollar, I'm justified to go buy this big TV. And like, it's irrelevant, but you're justified in your own mind. What, what's the goal, right? Feel good. Exactly. How about this one? How about judging Christians when they judge your deeds while you clearly and openly defy the commands of God? The way that's worded is funky, but in churches, you know, um, I don't know. Let's just make up a silly example. You know, you've got a a guy who calls himself a Christian and he's just got a foul mouth all the time. And, uh, And he's not seeking to build people up with the words that come out of his mouth. And somebody calls him on it and says, you're kind of a foul mouth dude. And he's like, well, who are you to judge me? That's Phariseeism. You are judging the actions of your brother who's calling you out out of love and concern for you while you continue to just defy God and not have a mouth that brings him honor and glory. But at the same time, we have to make sure to take the plank out of our own eyes so that we can see clearly. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I, that, I mean, there's the, good, there's the other part of that is if we're walking according to what we're supposed to do, then we don't have any, you know, not we don't have any, but you know. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, but we can we can we can say that to our brother and sister in Christ, you know, that you're doing it wrong. Um, in love, I mean, we we can we can say that to our brother and sister that hey, that's not right to be doing that, you know, because you're you called yourself a Christian. Yeah, absolutely, and we should do that. Yeah. And and the fact of the matter is, even if you do that to me and there's pride in your heart, that doesn't diminish my obligation to God's word. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, certainly we would want you to work on the pride in your heart, but that doesn't excuse me to continue doing what is in rebellion. How about posting Bible verses on your Facebook that you have no intention of actually living out? <laughs> That's Phariseeism. Yeah. You want the world to see what a good person you are. You post this Bible verse and you have no intention of actually living it out. How about, well, I, I, I mean, I've got more examples. Does anybody have any other examples of modern day Phariseeism? How about judging a godless, unbelieving world while you live in functional atheism yourself? Right? I go to church, I'm a good person. Look at these people out here, these godless people. And yet, you're living your life as if there is no God. How about not saying cuss words while you slanderously gossip about people? How about soft, beautiful words used to destroy other people. Right? Give me the, the foul mouth union electrician over the buttery-tongued serpent any day. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's more dangerous. I mean, they're both dangerous, but like if I had to take a pick, I would choose naughty four-letter words versus destructive tearing down words how about celebrating your wedding anniversary while you continue your adulterous porn habit Phariseeism right and I want to be a little bit careful here because some of this is just brokenness you know we're, we're we're people in process and so you could do some of these things without a pharisaical heart. 
Um, but the Pharisee is the person who, who focuses on the minor things and sees themselves as a good, self-righteous person while they neglect the actual state of the heart. Any other examples? All right, in one of the commentaries I came across uh, looking at this passage, I, I did find a great quote. It's a little bit longer, but I wanted to read it to you. This is from J.C. Ryle. He says, The conduct of our Lord on this occasion ought to be a pattern to all his people. Our grand reason for our faith and practice should always be, this is what is written in the Bible. What does the scripture say? We should endeavor to have the word of God on our side in all debatable questions. We should seek to be able to give a scriptural answer for our behavior in all matters of dispute. We should refer our enemies to the Bible as our rule of conduct. We will always find a plain text, the most powerful argument we can use. In a world like this, we must expect our opinions to be attacked if we serve Christ. And we may be sure that nothing silences adversaries so soon as a quotation from scripture. Let us, however, remember that, um, that if we are to use the Bible as our Lord did, we must know it well and be acquainted with its contents. We must read it diligently, humbly, preservingly, or perseveringly, sorry, prayerfully, or we shall never find its text coming to our aid in the time of need. To use the sword of the Spirit effectively, we must be familiar with it and have it often in our hands. There is no royal road to the knowledge of the Bible. It does not come to people by intuition. The book must be studied, pondered, prayed over, searched into, and not left always lying on a shelf or carelessly looked at now and then. It is the students of the Bible and they only who will find it a weapon ready to hand in the day of battle. I thought that was good. Um, I mean, I feel convicted that I don't know God's word as well as I should, but I'm also shocked at how little Christians often know God's word. Um, and we live in a day where we really sort of have no excuse because we have it. Right? You've got it on your phone. You've got it on your shelf. You can get one on Amazon for like 10 bucks. Um, yeah, you can get one for free here at church, right? Um, the reason why we don't know it is because we're doing other things. We're looking at Facebook. We're watching Netflix. We're being endlessly entertained. Um, and man, this is so powerful. I mean, my, my how do I get into this? This week has been heartbreaking for me because I don't I don't spend a lot of time on like Facebook, but I I like to go on there sometimes just to scroll through the feed for a couple of minutes and just kind of get a feel for like what people are thinking. And um, you know, through there I've got lots of different contacts. I have like old high school friends, I have college friends, I have people that were in the ministry that I used to be a part of, and. Um, I feel like the last 48 hours were kind of heartbreaking because lots of people who I assumed were actually followers of Jesus are saying shocking things in response to the Roe versus Wade decision. And one guy who, you know, I've sort of seen this drifting trajectory in some of the things he said over the last couple of years anyway, but he said, the Bible offers no justification for a pro-life position and he calls himself a Christian and I was just shocked by that I was like what Bible are you reading <laughs> so there's a guy who's come to this conclusion why because he doesn't know what God's word says yep. um, and uh, I didn't respond because um, yeah there's there's a lot of people call it Christian but remember in Revelation, there are seven types of Jesus, I mean, five, five types of believers, Jesus. Um, you're talking about the letters to the seven churches? Yeah, Is that what you're referring rebuke, to? Rebuke and said, repent. Yeah. 
Yeah, he says repent a lot there. Yeah, he said repent. And, and, and you know, Jesus warned us in Matthew 7, on that day many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, mm -hmm. we did all these mighty things in your work. They did pharisaical type things, right? We cast out demons. We did things that externally looked so good. And he's going to say, apart from me, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. And he also warned us that the, the way is narrow. It's difficult. And I think that things like this happen, like, you know, when Corona came, now World War II, and whatever unfolds, it almost like slips, I think, the work of who is who, and where is your alliance at the end. Yeah, God uses these things to sift and to prune his church. Yep, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And to expose lies, right? He's separating the wheat and the chaff. Yeah, kind of. yeah, separating the wheat and chaff. Again, going back to sort of my church, my prior church experience, I worked at a mega church, one of the biggest churches in America. Um, and, um, and I was caught up, I think, at least in the first probably four years of my six years there, in this idea that like the goal of the church is to grow. And uh, I found myself thinking over the last 48 hours, I want my church to shrink. <laughs> In the sense that I want my church to be the people who are actually here for the sake of Christ. Yep, yep. And if that means at the end of the day there's 20 of us, so be it. Mm -hmm. um, Jesus gave his disciples 12. Right. <laughs> so yeah, many, and we already so, looked at that so in John. He has an intimacy between, you know, all yeah. of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we'll... Wrap it up there. I'm sorry to do wrap up so early, but I uh, I'll need a couple minutes to go do communion for our um, our Cove team. And uh, I'm sorry that we didn't get into the beginning of chapter three because it just it continues on you know this picture of like what does it look like to do good on the Sabbath, uh, which I think is important, but. Gabe might be teaching next week. Maybe I'll do it since I already have a bunch of notes prepared, but Gabe might end up teaching next week. So, But in any case, we'll, we'll see you next week. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you are deeply concerned with the hearts of your people and you're at work to conform our hearts to your heart. And we thank you that the law was given ultimately that man would know who you are in particular, that it would show us your holiness and our sinfulness before you. And we thank you that we're no longer under the guardian of the law, but we are now under Christ. And that we have become keepers of the law of Christ by grace through faith because of the Spirit in us, causing us to walk in your statutes and obey your commands. Um, God, I pray that you would grow our love for you, that we would be eager to pursue you. Um, we thank you so much for this time. In Christ's name, amen. amen.